Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland. When Joe Biden was inaugurated on January 20th, he arrived in office with some ambitious ideas about tackling climate change. Biden's proposals were quite different from those of President Trump, who began his presidency by announcing the U.S. was leaving the Paris Agreement. But one of the things I got you out of is this thing sounds so good, but it's so bad. It's a ripoff of our country, the so-called Paris Biden made it clear that he was taking a new approach when he appointed former presidential candidate and secretary of state John Kerry to the newly created position of special presidential envoy for climate. It's why he rejoined the Paris Agreement within hours of being sworn in as president. It's why today he's issued executive orders mobilizing. Young activists such as Greta Thunberg have long criticized world leaders for not doing enough to help solve the climate crisis. We children are doing this to wake the adults up. We children are doing this for you to put your differences aside and start acting as you would in a crisis. And recent extreme weather events in the U.S., including flooding, heat waves and wildfires, have brought a renewed sense of urgency to discussions around climate change. But is there still time to turn things around? And are President Biden and John Kerry the right people to help lead the charge? I put those questions to Oliver Millman, The Guardian's environment reporter. I started by asking Oliver about Biden's record on climate change. So Biden, when he was first running in the Democratic primary, it was safe to say that he wasn't the first choice of climate activists and those very much worried about the environment. Um, He was kind of seen as a kind of lukewarm centrist on these issues, wasn't really ambitious enough when it came to cutting emissions. But I think one of Biden's skills is to see where Democrats are shifting, see where the base of the party is. And you could see that alarm over climate change was really growing within the party. We have to act as a nation. It shouldn't be so bad that millions of Americans live in the shadow of an orange sky. And they're left a- asking, is doomsday here? You began to see this far more kind of aggressive talk on uh, climate change than we'd ever seen before, really, from, from anyone as a, as a major uh, presidential candidate. By maintaining those investments and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut a greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. And then once in the White House, you, you've seen this complete reversal from the Trump era. He's kind of came out the gates very strongly. 
He kind of signed a flurry of executive orders on climate change. He rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. He stopped the Keystone XL pipeline, which was this controversial project bringing uh, oil from Canada. And he halted all new permits for oil and gas drilling on public lands. And he's uh, instituted this kind of whole of government approach tackling the climate crisis. So he's came out very strongly in his, his presidency. So, Oliver, what are President Biden's top policy priorities when it comes to tackling climate change? Would you say he has some realistic goals in mind? Yeah, I mean, he certainly set goals that are within the bounds of science. I mean, the scientists have said that uh, the world needs to cut emissions in half by the end of this decade and essentially zero them out by 2050. And that really is Biden's platform. That's the goals he sets the government and the U.S. to achieve. So, his, his goals are within uh, the realms of what well, the science demands in terms of avoiding catastrophic climate change. His policies, I, I think he's aimed to frame this issue in a very kind of pragmatic, upbeat kind of way. He's kind of painted this as a crisis, but also one that will create millions of jobs. Good paying union jobs is his kind of slogan that he's uh, put on it. Um, he sees the, a big opportunity in wind and solar jobs, retrofitting buildings and so on. And so he's tried to push through climate uh, measures in this infrastructure package that has been negotiated with Republicans. Unfortunately for him, a lot of those climate measures got stripped out once those talks uh, happened. And so Democrats are kind of pinning their hopes on a separate bill, a reconciliation bill that require just a bare majority to pass in the Senate. Um, that will include some of the more uh, ambitious climate measures, such as, you know, a vast upgrade of public transit, lots of money for electric vehicle developments and infrastructure, such as charging points, so you can, um, so you don't actually run out of gas or, <laughs> or charge in the middle of nowhere. And this uh, this measure called the Clean Electricity Standard, which will basically force utilities to phase out fossil fuels from the the power supply over a period of time. And I think if he gets that through and he unilaterally he can act on fuel efficiency standards for cars to make cars and trucks far less polluting, those are the two major sources of emissions in the US. So if he manages to get both of those things done this year, I think he'll be well on his way to meeting those goals. So considering everything that Biden has been able to get done so far, would you say he's on track with his climate-related goals, or does it feel like he's already falling behind in some ways? A lot of climate activists will say he's falling behind, that the momentum has stalled, he's got kind of bogged down and kind of lacks uh, ambition to kind of push through his promises. I feel we're in this kind of muddled middle ground at the moment where we're, we're kind of still in the, the process of, of making policy and seeing what comes out the other end. I think he'll be judged once those um, infrastructure bills go through to see exactly how strong those climate measures are. I think certainly on his own executive action, he's done a lot. I know some environmentalists would like to see him do a lot more to, to crack down on coal mining, oil and gas drilling and so on, to do more to actually declare a climate emergency like other countries have done. And Chuck Schumer, the, uh, the lead Democrat in the Senate, has has called for a climate emergency to be declared to by the federal government. President Biden should consider the declaration of a national emergency on climate change. There are other things he could do himself, but I think he's. it's fair to say he's done more and his rhetoric has been stronger than pretty much any president to date. 
but his legacy and his the ultimate success of lowering emissions will really hinge on what he managed to get through Congress. So, Oliver, as you know, America has lost a lot of its credibility on the world stage when it comes to addressing the climate crisis. And the G7 summit back in June felt like one of Biden's first really significant opportunities to set a new tone on this issue. So how significant was that summit in pushing climate change to the top of the U.S. agenda? It was significant. It was the first kind of international gathering, really, where the U.S. could kind of come back onto the world stage and say, look, we're, we're back on climate change. We're look, looking to be a, a leader again. We're, we're hoping to kind of prod other nations to do more. Biden and John Kerry, his climate envoy, have been uh, very keen to show that the U.S. is back. They've said that America is back humbly, but also also quite aggressive in the way it's uh, pursuing climate action. So they've kind of got, got to walk that line, really, of kind of atoning for the last four years, but also trying to use the U.S.'s leverage internationally to try and get other countries, most notably uh, China and India, to do more. Say goodbye to your burgers if you want to sign up for the Biden climate agenda. Americans would have to cut red meat consumption by a whopping 90 percent. That means only one. And then, of course, there are the Republicans who have had major reservations when it comes to Joe Biden's plans. Some Republican lawmakers even claimed that the president's climate policies would mean the end of hamburgers and steaks on menus. Those stories were obviously shown to be false, and Fox News actually had to issue an apology over that. But how are Republicans and right-wing media outlets responding to Biden's policies? I think Republicans had a choice after the Trump era whether to continue his rhetoric, denying science to claim that any action to address the climate crisis was disastrous for the U.S. economy, or whether to craft a sort of conservative alternative whereby uh, climate change is acknowledged and seen as a problem and the party could come up with alternative uh, solutions for it. I think they've mainly stuck with Trump. I mean, if you look at a lot of the rhetoric, it's around Biden being a job killer, him shutting down whole communities by shutting down fossil fuels, You do see Republicans, though, at the very top of the tree, the hierarchy of the party, acknowledge that there is growing alarm amongst American voters and even Republican voters about the climate crisis. So you see less and less outright denial of climate science. You see them acknowledge that it's a problem, but then they kind of fudge it a bit by saying, well, we we can't really go too fast, too hard. And cutting fossil fuels because that will be uh, terrible for the economy and uh, and so on and so on. So you've seen a slight shift in rhetoric, um, but uh, overall you're getting kind of a unified opposition to, to Biden's agenda, even when it comes to quite kind of middle-of-the-road bipartisan things such as upgrading trains and buses and uh, putting more electric vehicle chargers in and so on. There's opposition even to those measures. So I think uh, Biden's getting very little joy out of the Republicans, and uh, there's no indication that's going to change anytime soon. And even before he was sworn in, Biden was taking some steps to show he really considered climate policy to be a top priority. Last December, a month before his inauguration, Biden announced he was naming former Secretary of State John Kerry as the first ever presidential envoy for climate. So why did Biden specifically choose Kerry for that role, Oliver? 
So Kerry is obviously very experienced hands for former U.S. Secretary of State and crucially was the U.S. Secretary of State under the Obama administration when the Paris Climate Agreement was put together. So he was intimately involved in those talks, helped craft that uh, agreement. Shielding our planet from the worst consequences of climate change is a generational challenge. But in the three decades that I have been working on this issue, I have never seen the kind of positive momentum that we have now. He knows a lot of the diplomats, he knows a lot of the world leaders. He's someone who can kind of jump straight into the job and pretty much know what he's doing. So you've seen Kerry set about his task with a certain zeal. He's shuttled across Asia and Europe and to try and um, uh, forge alliances with other countries on, on doing more on climate, uh, particularly China and Germany and other, other major emitters. And he's even held talks with some of the more recalcitrant countries that uh, are very much still wedded to fossil fuels like uh, Brazil and Australia, trying to get them to do more. The, the planet's future will be determined by the choices we make now. And I have children and grandchildren, and that's a pretty personal stake. There's every indication he understands the scope of the uh, of the emergency too. So I think Biden sees him as a kind of crucial person who will help make or break this administration's climate policy. The administration is launching a series of earth shots to drive down the costs of new technologies, marshalling the innovative capacity of researchers and companies. And if we meet these earth shots by 2030, we will turbocharge the clean energy revolution. There have been some critics who have argued Kerry is actually putting too much emphasis on technology that doesn't exist yet when he talks about tackling climate change. So what have you made of Kerry's time in his role so far, Oliver? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he has said that half of all um, future emissions cuts will come from technology doesn't exist yet, which surprised some scientists who say, well, look, this is really the critical decade in which to cut emissions. And we've got existing technologies such as solar and wind and and other things to actually bring down emissions quite quickly. So that has caused some controversy. He's also referred to gas as a bridge fuel, which, although it's less polluting than coal, for example, environmentalists do point out it's still a fossil fuel, so it should also be phased out. And he's also declined to actually commit to a phase out of coal that many other countries have done, such as the UK, for example, and Germany. That's a kind of politically toxic issue in the US, obviously. But still, coal is the most polluting of fossil fuels. And for Kerry to decline to set an end date for it or, or even kind of confirm that coal has to come to an end has disappointed some people. But he has also spoken strongly about the uh, Glasgow talks. He said it's the last best chance to confront climate change. And he said that he really hopes that other countries will do more. We've got to make climate the significant issue it is, and particularly over the next four months. 100 days between now and this important meeting. And that, that, that 100 days could save many lives, save trillions of dollars. And Kerry has really emphasized the importance of some of the upcoming climate talks. Kerry has actually called the upcoming United Nations Climate Change Conference a pivotal moment in getting to grips with the climate crisis. So how significant will that conference be? It will be hugely significant. This, of course, is the conference that was going to take place five years after the Paris Agreement, where countries were going to come back and say what kind of progress they're making on cutting emissions and come back with new promises to further cut emissions. Because, of course, 
the pledges they've given so far do not add up to a world where temperature rises within safe limits as is decided by scientists and governments. So it's hugely consequential. Having the US back as a as a kind of leading force in those talks is is huge. And it'd be interesting to see how well Biden and Kerry will have corralled other countries and helped push them to do more by the time the, the talks come around. I mean, there are still sticking points over climate finance, whether richer countries should be paying for poorer countries for climate impacts and whether they can actually come up with that money. And there's also the, the question of how quickly and how, uh, how deeply countries that are developing still can cut their emissions. So those, those kind of long-standing issues in climate talks are likely to come up again. But I know that the White House is very optimistic that a very significant deal can be done and that there'll be significant upgrades in ambition when it comes to the talks themselves. The mayor of Cedar City has declared a state of emergency as intense flooding has left vehicles submerged. We also had portions in West Texas that were under a blizzard warning. Tonight, those explosive wildfires in the West are threatening millions of Americans with potential health problems. And Oliver, as as you and I know all too well, in the last few weeks and months, we've seen all kinds of extreme weather events across the U.S. There have been heat waves and flooding and devastating wildfires. Are those events generally understood by the American public to be a result of climate change? Polling clearly shows there's record levels of concern amongst the American public about climate change, and that has coincided with an uptick in in disasters in recent years. You saw last year was a record year for wildfire in the West, and now this year looks like it's going to surpass it. You've had uh, huge uh, hurricanes and, and flooding as well in the East Coast. Um, these incredible heat waves. I think it has shocked a lot of people. I think the stance that climate change doesn't exist and not all around us already has become uh, quite shaky. I don't think many people now subscribe to that. You're seeing climate denialism is at record lows. I think polling shows only around one in 10 people are dismissive of climate change, where more than half are uh, concerned or, or very alarmed about it. So uh, and you're seeing that even among Republican voters, this kind of growing concern over climate change. So th- there is this shift. I think politicians recognise it. The the big question is what to do about it. And it kind of feels we're maybe 10, 20 years too late for, for that conversation. We we should have been having that conversation a long time ago because now we're, we're really at the crunch point where emissions have to be cut very, very rapidly to avoid far, far worse consequences. I mean, as, as bad as the heat has been this year, as bad as the fires have been, as bad as the floods have been, they'll actually look quite mild when it comes towards the end of this century, uh, even if you do constrain emissions. So that's quite a scary prospect, I think, and it should be one that should galvanise people. Considering everything we've talked about, are you optimistic that Biden and John Kerry can do much on climate while they're in office? Can they really follow through with these plans or are these just empty words, as some climate activists have argued? I think the Biden presidency can can be a consequential one for the fight to avoid catastrophic climate change, not just because of the rhetoric, because frankly, it needs to be. I mean, we're in this kind of critical decade of fighting the climate emergency where we have to radically scale down emissions we have to halve them this uh, decade. So really, the Biden presidency is going to take up at least four years of that that decade. 
And so it's critical that he, he does do something on that. The biggest tragedy, perhaps, of the Trump era is the time wasted. This is a time challenge. It's not something you can leave alone for 10, 20 years and come back to. It's, it's something you need to move on very quickly. And I think uh, within that critical decade, we're probably in the critical year in the US. Democrats currently hold the White House, the House of Representatives, and, the, and by the slenderest of margins, the Senate in a year when there's a crucial UN climate talks at the end of the year. So uh, that may change next year. In the midterm elections, the Democrats may well lose control of the Senate. So if you're looking at uh, the possibilities of climate action, it's within quite a narrow window. It's We've got this kind of year, really. And after that, it's far more uncertain. So this may well be the critical year in the critical decade. It's imperative that a very swift action is taken. If he can do that, that's something that will impact not just this generation, but generations to come. And Oliver, we always ask a what else question on our show. So this week, we're going to pivot from the climate to the long-awaited congressional investigation into the January 6th insurrection, which actually began this week. It was never going to be easy to select a bipartisan committee to investigate the storming of the Capitol, but a panel did indeed start proceedings this week anyway. So how do you expect the investigation to go? Well, I think it's important to to remember the context of this. This House committee was set up after Senate Republicans blocked an attempt to establish an independent commission. So Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker, had to go ahead and uh, set up this, uh, this separate House committee offered spots to Republicans, but rejected the two picks put forward who were kind of vocal Trump supporters. So that has already caused some tension. Obviously, it's allowed the Republicans to paint this as a partisan exercise. Two Republicans are taking part, of course, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, who are um, critical figures of Trump. But essentially, other Republicans have boycotted this and called it a kind of partisan kind of witch hunt, really. So that is the context in which it's taking place. Benny Thompson, who's the Democrat who's going to chair this, has said he's going to subpoena Trump administration officials. It might be Mark Meadows, who is the former chief of staff. It might be Ivanka Trump, who's uh, uh, Donald Trump's daughter, obviously, and former advisor. Uh, so we may see some interesting revelations. I think we we will see some certainly some anguish when the hearing started on Tuesday. We heard from four police officers who testified to the panel about the uh, insurrection itself, certainly testimony that will stick in the mind and and certainly uh, move a lot of people and play very well on uh, TV. So that may change some kind of hearts and minds on it. But in terms of the political equation, I think Republicans will continue to try and obstruct and uh, paint this as a partisan exercise. So in terms of this hearing proving to be a kind of unifying moment where where the parties kind of come together to face down this this kind of threat to ensure it doesn't happen again i think that's maybe a little bit over optimistic i'm not overly hopeful of a kind of rational response in the public interest when it comes to this hearing so on that very somber note oliver millman the guardian's environment reporter thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week thank you Joni. and that's all from me for now This is actually my final week on the podcast, and I want to say that it has truly been a pleasure. Thank you all for trusting me with some of your time over the past month. Jonathan Friedland will be back with you next week. For anyone wanting to hear what's happening in UK politics, listen back to Wednesday's episode of Politics Weekly, as Heather Stewart brings us up to date on the latest spat over the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
please keep sending us any questions or comments you have about the show or the state of U.S. politics. You can send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com, or you can tweet me directly on Twitter. My handle there is at Joan E. Grieve. But for now, I'll say goodbye. The producer is Esther Opoku-Jenny, and I'm Joni Grieve. Please stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.